Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. The Rebbe introduced a novel idea when he mentioned that at the Seder table, we have four sons. The wise son, the wicked son, the simple son, and the one who doesn't know how to ask. And every year we we deal with the questions and with the lack of questions that these four sons represent. And it would seem that these four sons represent the totality of the Jewish community. Every kind of Jew is represented here. The wise, the wicked, the simple, and the clueless. But the Rebbe said that there's a fifth son. A radical idea. There's a fifth son. And the fifth son is very much a part of the Jewish community. And the reason he's not mentioned at the Seder is because he doesn't attend. He doesn't come to the Seder. He doesn't participate with the family. He doesn't participate with the community. He doesn't want to be at a Seder. He's elsewhere. And so the community basically ignored him, wrote him off, sat Shiva. He doesn't belong to the family anymore. He's gone. And so when we sit down to the Seder and we want to deal with all facets of the Jewish community, we deal with four kinds. The fifth, the fifth is no longer relevant because it doesn't belong. And the Rebbe said the fifth son does belong. And if there's an empty chair at your Seder table, it's because the fifth son does have a seat. He belongs. He's just not coming. He is a part of the Jewish community, and he needs to be dealt with, and he needs to be found, reached, and brought back. And that was part of the Rebbe's launching of this outreach work of not being content with the Jews who are committed, with Jews who are participating, with Jews who are involved, but to recognize that every Jew is part of the community even if he doesn't attend, even if he refuses to attend. That certainly has changed the world dramatically. No Jewish leader today could look the public in the eye and call himself a leader if he didn't have outreach programs. If he wasn't involved in reaching out, he could not call himself a Jewish leader. Fifty years ago, this was a radical idea rejected by most of the Jewish community. There is no reaching out. The fifth son is gone. Forget about him. You can't reach him. There's nothing you can say. He will not come back. It's over. Today, if you can reach farther to not only the fifth son, but perhaps a sixth or seventh son, twice removed, three times removed from Jewish life, then you are a leader. Then you can call yourself a Jewish leader. That's how dramatically things have changed from, 19, from 1950 to 
1999. But in this awareness, in our concern for the fifth son, every decade brought an innovation. Every decade changed the relationship that we have with the fifth son. It started off simply by a recognition. It was a radical idea simply to say that the fifth son is a Jew and that we should be concerned. A stage later, the fifth son was not only recognized as a Jew who needs to be uh, cried over, for whom we need to have some kind of, of compassion, but that the fifth son was actually someone to whom we speak with respect. The fifth son has his opinion. He's not necessarily wicked. He's not necessarily stupid. He has an opinion. And we need to engage in dialogue and in conversation and in debate and in study with the fifth son because there's so much we need to teach him. And being intelligent... He can learn. He will learn. The relationship with the fifth son needs to undergo another change. It's not enough that we have sympathy for him. And it's not enough that we're willing to teach him. It's not enough that we're willing to go to great lengths to seek him out, to find him wherever he happens to be, and teach him there. There's something more. And that is that we also need to hear what the fifth son is saying because we can learn something from that. The Rebbe spoke constantly about love of fellow Jews and the oneness between Jews. Love of a fellow Jew is not the same as oneness. Because love can be a very one-sided affair. Oneness means that it's a two-way. It's a, it's a two-dimensional union. Oneness cannot result from one person feeling that he is the outreacher and the other person feeling that he is the outreachee that one is the teacher and one is the student. One is the know-it-all and one is the know-it-nothing. One is full of knowledge and, and, and information and the other is empty and uninformed. That's not oneness, even if it is love. The student may love to learn and the teacher may love to teach. And as a result, the student may love his teacher and the teacher may love his student but it's not oneness. Oneness would mean when the student learns from the teacher and the teacher learns from the student. What can we learn from the fifth son? And what must we teach the fifth son? We must teach the fifth son what Torah really says and what Torah is really all about because he doesn't know. Whatever his reasons are for not attending the Seder, it's a misunderstanding. It's due to a faulty 
presentation of Torah. There was something about the introduction to Jewish life that was not correct, that was not quite Jewish, and that's why the fifth son refuses to attend. Because there's something un-Jewish about Judaism in the fifth son's perception. We need to teach him what Judaism really is. And once he knows what Judaism really is, he won't be the fifth son. We may need to teach the fifth son that truth is a value unto itself, even when it can't be embellished with logic. What's right is right, even when we're not intelligent enough to prove it. What's right is right, even when we can't find the right words with which to convince others of its rightfulness. And if you think about all the great moral heroes of history, they stood by their values. They knew that right was right, even when they couldn't explain it to others, either because they didn't have the explanation, they didn't have the words, or the others were not listening would not be convinced, could not be convinced. But right was right. And they outlived, they survived. Their truth is still true. The questions have passed away. The questions have changed. The objections have changed. But what's true is still true, and it's the same truth. So we need to teach the fifth son that true is true because it's true, not because someone has a great argument, not because someone has a great presentation that sounds convincing to our limited intelligence. What do we need to learn from the fifth son? The fifth son has some valid objections. Of course, he may also be angry at his father. He may be angry at his father because his father would punish him for not doing a mitzvah. And that's wrong. To punish someone for not doing a mitzvah is not correct. It does not bring good results. It is not the proper tool for inviting someone to participate in Jewish life. It is not the way in which we present values to our children, values that we want them to embody to absorb, to become, not merely to obey. When you want obedience, you slap your child, and you get obedience. But you don't get a mensch. You haven't changed the character for the better. You've possibly changed it for the worse. So if obedience is the goal, punishment works. But if Judaism is the goal... If godliness is the goal, if morality is the goal, then punishment does not help. And so the child might be angry at his father. He doesn't want to come to the Seder because he was punished too much. And maybe in his mind, unjustly. He doesn't feel he deserved the punishment. But the fifth son might also object, refuse to come to the Seder, for more significant reasons. He may object to come to the Seder because he feels that isolating yourself from the rest of the world 
being so parochial, so sectarian, Jews get together and enjoy the suffering of the rest of the world. We are special. Everybody else is bad. There is something in the fifth son that refuses to accept this. This can't be true. This is too petty. It's too small. This cannot be a divine truth. How can divine truth apply only to a handful of people? Only to Jews. And not, not even to all Jews. Only to the observant Jews. And not even all observant Jews because his father wouldn't eat in another observant father's home on Pesach. How could this be? There's something about it that bothers the fifth son. And he doesn't come because he's making a statement. What is a universal truth cannot be limited to one group of people. And if Torah is valuable, if Torah is the word of God, shouldn't it be a universal truth? And he's right. The fifth son is right. Torah is for all people. Torah is universal. Torah does encompass every issue, every nation, every aspect of the created universe. Not that all people should be Jewish. But the Torah addresses every condition in the world. To the Jew, the Torah has Jewish commandments. To the non-Jew, the Torah has universal human commandments. Concerning the animal, the Torah has compassion. Concerning the physical object, the Torah places value. So the Torah says you may not destroy wantonly any, any object. It's wasteful. Every object has its value. You do not destroy what God creates. Concerning animals, God says, do not be cruel. Do not cause pain. Do not be immoral in your treatment of animals. Why? Because animals feel pain and animals feel injustice. Bilam's donkey said, I'm a donkey. You can ride on me. And you can beat me to go faster. But don't beat me when I can't go. There's an angel in the way. And you, you, you beat me three times for nothing. The animal objects to abuse. And so the Torah tells us to feel the animal's pain and discomfort. Feed the animal before you sit down to eat yourself. Do not muzzle an animal when he's working around food. Do not be cruel to animals. Concerning human beings, the Torah tells us the dignity of a human being, the respect for a human being, the sympathy for a human being. Love the stranger, because you were once strangers in Egypt. And concerning Jews, God tells us, you are a holy nation, you have 613 commandments, this is how you fulfill your purpose so the Torah is universal. And any rabbi who teaches Torah should be able to teach it publicly, should be able to teach it on television, with everyone listening in, because the Torah is valid and essential. 
to all human beings. The fifth son is right. Only the fifth son has this mistaken impression that the Torah is permanently limited to the few people who observe it and believe in it. And to him, that's not a real Torah. And he's right. Another objection that the fifth son has. He doesn't like the attitude. He doesn't like the mentality of the people who sit at the Seder. He doesn't like their smugness. He doesn't like their pettiness. He doesn't like their moral one-upmanship. It seems to him petty. It seems to him distasteful. If you're really moral, if you're really good, why are you competing? Why are you holier than? Why are you better than? Why this competition? Something in the soul of the fifth son objects to competitive morality, to competitive godliness. His instinct tells him that godliness must come along with humility, that godliness must be innocent, artless. It must come natural. It can't be something you wear on your sleeve. It can't be something you beat others up with. I'm better than you. I'm holier than you. I know more than you. This can't be. And so he objects to this by not coming to the Seder. Can we learn something from the fifth son? Of course. It's like a warning bell. When we are producing fifth sons, it's not the, it's not the fifth son we should worry about. It's ourselves. Why are we producing fifth sons? What is it about our way? What is it about our practice? What is it about our teaching? What is it about the form of Judaism that we are living that is creating fifth sons? They don't just happen. Fifth sons are not born. They're made. What are we doing that's making fifth sons? And if we don't listen, then we are simply validating. We're simply proving that the fifth son's objection is correct. We won't listen. We won't hear. When the fifth son says, you have become arrogant in your holiness, it makes no impression. We don't listen. We're not interested in what he has to say. And so he's right. Our godliness has become arrogant. We feel no need for self-improvement, for any soul-searching. And this is what he objected to in the first place. And wasn't he right? Of course he was. What else does the fifth son say? The fifth son says, you accept everything blindly, you're indiscriminate, and therefore you're dangerous. You don't think. You don't judge. You are thoughtless. And although faith is wonderful and sometimes even enviable, but if you have to pay the price 
if you have to choose between being a believer and being thoughtful, the fifth son says, I would rather be thoughtful. I'll take my chances. But to not be thoughtful, to simply accept everything indiscriminately, blindly, does not appeal to the fifth son. And that's not because he's bad. That's because he's wise. And we need to hear that, and we need to respond to that, and we need to look at what we're doing in order to know what it is that is giving the fifth son the impression that you have to choose between having faith and being thoughtful, as if the two do not go together. Being thoughtful means that even when you believe that everything that God does is good, you can still distinguish between those things that are painful, those things that don't appear good, those things that don't seem right. Simple example, painful example. The fifth son objects to godliness, to Judaism, to Torah, because God allowed a holocaust. Now that itself wouldn't be so bad. Everybody objects to a holocaust. But the fifth son has heard rabbis and teachers and maybe even his own parents saying the Holocaust was not wrong. People were sinning and that's what brought the Holocaust. A sixth sense in the fifth son tells him that this cannot be correct. This can't be right. This can't be nice. This can't be good. This can't be godly. You cannot blame the victim. You cannot justify God because you have faith at the expense of the victim. That's thoughtless. That's where you have to choose between having faith and being thoughtful. Or so it appears. The fifth son is correct. Of course we believe that everything God does is for the good. That doesn't mean that we don't feel the pain, that we don't suffer. It doesn't mean that we don't ask the question. On the contrary, the more you believe in God, the more you ask that question. Because the more real God is, the more real your question is. Who are you asking this question of if you don't believe in God? How can you object to the judge and condemn him for being unjust when you don't believe there is a judge? So it's precisely the believer who asks that question. The one who believes in God and the one who believes in the goodness of people. If you don't believe in God, you have no one to ask that question of. And if you don't believe in people, you have no objection to their suffering. So who asks the question, why do the righteous suffer? Only someone who knows that God is listening to his question, and only someone who knows that the sufferer was righteous. There's another objection that the fifth son has. He gets the impression that to be a Jew you must behave a certain way. If you live by the commandments, you are a true Jew. 
If you don't live by the commandments, you are not a true Jew. You're merely a technical accident of history. You happen to be born to a Jewish mother, but you're not really a Jew. That's the impression. That's what he's heard from his grandparents. He's heard it from his rabbis. Or simply, it hangs in the air. There is that impression. The fifth son objects because his godly soul tells him that it can't be true. A Jew is a Jew because he's Jewish, not because of anything he does or doesn't do. And that's not a minimal Jewishness. That's the maximal Jewishness. Because no Jew can be more Jewish or less Jewish than a Jew. And so to prove his point, he refuses to participate. He doesn't come to the Seder because he's trying to convince you that a Jew is Jewish even if he doesn't eat matzah. A Jew is Jewish even if he doesn't fast on Yom Kippur. Isn't he correct? Isn't he right? Of course he's right. Now we have to ask ourselves, what gave him the wrong impression?